All right, everyone. <clears throat> Thank you for coming this evening. Tonight's language um, will be Korean, Korean language and civilization. As far as I can tell, we know nothing about Korea as a culture. Korea does not exist. We've never had any interaction with it. It's influenced no one ever in the history of the planet. And basically, it's a non-entity, culturally speaking, in the United States. This is odd. In fact, this is almost shocking. Um, it's easy to ignore Persian in, in a way because it, you know, the, the, the main thrust of that civilization sort of took a big dip five or six hundred years ago. Uh, dead languages, why would we know those? Like Greek and Latin, why learn those? But Korea is one of our largest trading partners. Um, they're one of the largest manufacturing, most high, highly advanced civilizations in the world. You have uh, Samsung, LG, Hanjin. I mean, you have huge chai bowls, which are, are sort of very large uh, Korean industrial combines uh, that are active all over the world in, in finance, engineering, research, you name it, the Koreans are doing it. So economically, they're, they're vitally important. We have a special trade agreement with them, by the way, just with Korea. Uh, historically speaking, and in recent history, of course, we uh, fought a war on the Korean Peninsula. We have continuously had troops present in Korea for over 50 years. We have uh, tens of thousands of troops there right now. If we were going to get into a war, almost certainly where that war would start would be on the Korean Peninsula. The most likely place for the United States to be at war at any given moment is probably the Korean Peninsula. But we know nothing about them. I mean, really, it just seems like it's just, it just, just a blank. And I think there's reasons for that, and, and some of them are odd, and some of them are understandable. So the first thing, if we just start a little bit with the language and look at the history, which makes some of the language a little clearer, uh, Korean is considered a language isolate, which means that there's no language like it. Uh, there are scholars, this is a bit of a, of a debate, there are some scholars who argue that um, that is in fact uh, a member of the Uralic and Altaic language family. There's a chair right up here, there's another chair. Uh, this is a member of the Uralic and Altaic language family, this is disputed, but Basically, there's no clear connection between Korean and any other language. Again, a language isolate to the Korean Peninsula. And if you look on the, the back of, of the sheet, you'll see a map of Korea. And on one hand, it is this big, long peninsula that you can say, oh, well, certainly it could be isolated geographically. But really, this northern boundary that we have currently with Korea, with, uh, the northern boundary of North Korea with China, um, has flexed all over. That, that's gone further north. It's gone to, uh, uh, to Russia, Manchuria used to be called. The Russians have been down much further. So there's been a lot of interplay, particularly in the north, with the Chinese, the Manchurians, the Mongols, uh, and the Russians. And that's been going on for, that for hundreds of thousands of years. So while you look at it on one end and you go, oh, it really looks isolated, really geographically not that isolated and act, act, actually quite active in its history on the northern border. Also, if you look in the south, Japan, the Korea Strait uh, towards the bottom between Korea and Japan, um, Japan is right there. I mean, Japan is not, you can see it clearly across the strait. The islands are, I mean, Japan is extraordinarily close, and we'll talk about uh, the influence Korea has had on Japan, although Japan tends to ignore this, uh, has been very significant, in fact, spectacularly significant. Um, so on one hand, an isolate language development, some cultural isolation, but geographically not as isolated as, as people tend to imagine. Um, Korean language itself as spoken, again, is the isolate part. Um, as written, you have this weird issue. The written Korean is Hangul. That's the alphabet that you see on the front page. That is Hangul. This was developed in the 1450s, say John the Great, um, to write the Korean language. But really, it was not widely used until the late 18th, early 19th century and was not the official, really serious official language of, of North or South Korea um, until... I mean, really, 1900 or even later, because the Chinese were around. Um, and what the Koreans 
really did, if you were literate in Korea for roughly the first 2,000 years, um, it meant that you had learned classical Chinese. Well, it class wasn't classical Chinese then, of course. It was, you had learned the standard Chinese of the day. And so what they did is they came up with this hanja, which was the ability to write Korean phonetic speech using Chinese characters. But it meant that if you were going to do that, of course, you were already literate in Chinese. So really, the primary literary language, with some exceptions which I'll talk about, for the history of Korea, for written history of Korea from you know, 600 till 1900 uh, or later, was in Chinese. Um, and the hanja was used in, in, in ver varying ways. There are different hybrid systems that were developed, Guangzhou, to, to, to represent different sort of speech patterns. So as I talk about Korean literature and the development of the Korean intellectual classes, it's important to remember that much, not all, but the vast majority of the work was done in the uh, contemporary Chinese. So whatever the state of the art of Chinese writing was, the Koreans were right there. Their scholars were first rate. This is something that's important, and we'll talk about this. So the spoken Korean evolves, but is primarily written in Chinese characters, along with just straight up classical Chinese being written. So Chinese, the, the scholars in Korean were at least bilingual, several, most of them knew, again, historically standard, many more languages than that. And so the texts that have come down to us tend to be a mix, but many of them tend to be in very extraordinarily well-written classical Chinese. <clears throat> so Korean history, as history begins with references in the Chinese classics, their nearest neighbors, you know, so they, they look down to the south and they find these people. And originally the Chinese didn't have much good uh, to say about them. They called them barbarians, sort of those, those people down south who don't know very much. Um, but the archaeological evidence suggests that there were a pretty coherent cultural groupings throughout the peninsula. And, and they'd been there for at least 500,000 years, by the way. So very long uh, settlement history. They come into written history again with the Chinese. Um, the big change comes in about 100 BC, the Han Dynasty establishes a protectorate. They establish four protectorates, actually, which means that they bring in uh, well, they sort of conquer uh, Korea, much of, of Korea, not quite all of it, but, but the central, northern and central Korea. And they set up four provincial governors, sort of think of it that way, who begin administering um, these different areas, sort of like states, I guess you could count. But it's, it's important to note this isn't a, tr uh, a transplant of this vast number of Chinese. It was just a very limited number of officials. Um, and scholars and some military, a little bit, not even a huge amount of military, who are governing uh, in the name of, of, of the Han ruler. And this starts the involvement, the very direct involvement, of Chinese scholarship and learning along the peninsula that will continue for the next 2,000 years. So this is important to note. This is an ongoing influence. Around zero, I'm rounding these dates off, uh, you get the, the first significant period of the three kingdoms are established. So no, uh, Silla, uh, Guaguero, and Bakchi. My pronunciation again, I apologize. Um, and these take over from the four provincial sections uh, of the Han, and they put in native governments. And these three kingdoms continue to influence the shape of Korean politics today. The, 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 it's, they sort of, like we say, oh, they're from the south. And it sort of resonates with us that, oh, that means something about those people because they're from a particular place. It's in the United States. Southerners aren't from a foreign country. But we identify that as being geographically or culturally somewhat separate. So the three kingdom period still referenced today. I guess it's, it's amazing because this is 2,000 years later. They still will point that out and say, oh, well, those, those people are from Silla. They're, those kinds of, they're those kinds of people, right? And this influences all kinds of political uh, um, systems. But it's still there, which is, which is shocking. But this is the beginning of domestic, organized uh, political rule um, that we recognize in, on the Korean Peninsula. Of course, because they had been governed by China, they took some models from China. But it's important to notice, um, the, the example I was trying to think of as we, as we move into these influences is 
we came from, the United States was founded by people who immigrated largely from England originally. And England had a parliament and we sort of got a democracy kind of thing. So, but we would never say we're just England, right? We wouldn't say we're just this offshoot of England. Often for some reason, if you read things about Korea or Korean texts or Korean history, you will find this, this notion that, well, you know, China just came in, the Koreans went, well, the Chinese, that's, that's it, that's what you do. Everything they took, they went, wow, this looks pretty good, we like it, we're gonna make it ours. So there was a, a, a continual process of studying, absorbing, and translating into to, to the native Korean scene. So this was not a one-way street, or it wasn't like a cultural imprint. China wasn't in there forcing them to adopt these things. They took the parts they liked, they ignored the parts they didn't like, they adapted it to the local scene, and they developed it quite distinctly uh, in their own way, all throughout Korean history. So it's important to keep in mind. Um, Around, well, between, so between you know, 0 and 675, the Three Kingdoms period is the same history as every period when you have three different large ruling bodies that border each other, right? Alliances to kill people and wars and battles and then settlements and peace and prosperity and then some more wars and some, right? It just, this rolls on and on. So it looks very much the same. What's important culturally and intellectually at the time um, is the importation of Buddhism. You know, India, China, Buddhism comes into Korea and of Confucianism. And originally, Buddhism is really winning. Uh, this is important to know that Buddhism comes in and is really carrying the greater intellectual weight. Um, partly this is because the uh, traditional Korean beliefs were animist. And one of the nice things about Buddhism, at least as the Koreans decided to understand it, is it had nothing to say bad about animism. Like, you want to be animist? Great. We'll just take our temples, to Buddha, and we'll put them right on top of the hills that we used to worship as animists hills, right? So they actually just transmigrated a lot of their beliefs into a sort of sympathy with the Buddhist beliefs. And this kicked off a tradition that lives till today of a very powerful Buddhist influence in, in Korean history. Simultaneously, though, they're also getting the Confucius influence, but originally, this is much softer. Uh, Buddhism had, had a lot more power. Slowly but surely, the Buddhists created more and more authority, more and more uh, temples. Temples sort of accumulated land so that they could uh, farm them. That means they're accumulating wealth. So they became very much like the Catholic Church in a way, where uh, religious systems seem to be able to do this, get land, acquire wealth, and then uh, you know, it creates a political problem. Um, <clears throat> So uh, roughly uh, around the 7th or 8th century, to, to fight back against that, the ruling elites in Korea decided, you know what, let's change a little bit. Let's put the emphasis on Confucianism as a way of fighting the temples and the power of the Buddhists. We want to do some land redistribution. Who has the land? The Buddhist monks. We want to upset the hierarchy. Who's controlling the hierarchy and the power right now? Well, we think too much has accumulated in the Buddhist sects. So it set up this sort of battle tension between Confucianism and Neo-Confucianism and the native uh, uh, Buddhist sects in Korea. And that sort of this tension, times cooperating but mostly in tension, dominates the intellectual development of the Korean peninsula. But the type of Buddhism, again, as I mentioned, that, that Korea develops, one, very animist in nature and feel even today. They're, that's where they built their temples. This is how they thought. Two, they took a form of sort of Mahayana Buddhism. Um, and the Korean scholars looked at all the different threads of Buddhism and said, this doesn't add up. This doesn't all match up. Right? And they said, let's create a coherent, sensible Buddhist doctrine that's rational all the way through, or at least consistent all the way through. Um, this is a form of Korean Buddhism that sort of dominates uh, the Buddhist thinking in Korea up until today and, and was you know, hugely influential from about 400, you know, six, for the last 1,600 years. Now, there's always in Buddhism so many different sects and belief systems, but it was really this native instinct to create a consistent, coherent Buddhist uh, thought 
that would deal with things like, well, the Tibetans are way over here. That doesn't make any sense. This is way over there. That doesn't make any sense. Let's come up with a doctrine that we can all understand. Simultaneously with Confucianism, in China, the, the Confucius system um, had many elements. That weak aristocracy, very strong imperial system. Lots of business people, lots of sort of what we would call um, unregulated activities of the people. Korea, not so much. The Confucian system in Korea became much more associated with the rule of the aristocracy. If you wanted to take the exam for the Confucius system so that you could become a state uh, counselor or you become a, a governor or you could become any kind of official, basically you had to be on the rolls of the landed gentry. So this was a way of keeping education very much more narrowly focused in the hands of, of about 20 or 30% of the population who might be able to qualify. 10% sure, the next you know, 20% they might be able to get a family member or two in there. And again, the effort it took to do this was immense because it's not Korean, it's in Chinese. And so you have to learn a foreign language, a very difficult language, and you have to learn it really well. Now the Koreans did this so well that they actually sent scholars from Korea to China who passed the civil service exams in China. This is almost unique in Chinese history. And then they would allow them to serve. So they were, I mean, they were the sort of province made really good. And China, as this developed over time, I mean, they had some battles with the Tang Dynasty, they had border disputes, it wasn't all love and friendship, but it developed pretty quickly that both sides said, you know, we really respect the Chinese, and the Chinese said, we really respect the Koreans. There was a very friendly interchange. Eventually, it became sort of almost like US and Canada. They're different, but we're so close, we're pretty, we're pretty dang friendly. And so as this is developing, you have the Three Kingdoms period, again, growing influence of Buddhism and Confucian, zero to 675-ish. Um, and then Scylla successfully uh, fights off its erstwhile allies. Um, in this case, that would be the Tang Dynasty. So they were, they were fighting to unify the province. They, they sort of sided with the Chinese against one of their enemies. And as soon as they defeated them, they turned back. And, of course, brilliantly said, no, no, now we're going to fight you. And they settled this. And, and two-thirds, almost the entire Korean peninsula was unified. This is for the first time under one uh, group, which was uh, still the, this, this area. And that goes on for about 350 years or so um, until, you know, roughly 936 or 1000. And they found the city of Guangzhou. This is one of those things, again, when history that we've completely lost. This was the capital of, 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 of the region so for about a thousand years. Um, its fluorescence was in about the 5th to the 10th century. At a time when Paris had approximately 20,000 citizens, it had at least 400,000. Some scholars put it as high as 800,000 citizens extraordinarily wealthy. Gold, art, some of the finest Buddhist texts are from this period and from this city. The versions are the best, are the cleanest. They invented movable metal type. This was not invented in, well, it was independently invented in, in, in Europe, uh, but it was not, in, it was previously invented, movable metal type to do the Buddhist texts uh, in Kuangchu at least 200 years previous to even anything roughly equivalent to that uh, in Europe. They had the most beautiful pottery. If you want to see some lovely pottery, look up Korean Celadon uh, pottery from this period. It's absolutely jaw-dropping. Even the Chinese admitted at the time that, man, those guys are making some nice pottery. So the aesthetic potential was huge. The city itself now is a World Heritage Site. In fact, it's like three World Heritage Sites all in that area because there's one of the most beautiful collections of Buddhist statuary, Buddhist manuscripts, incredibly beautiful ancient buildings. And if you stand roughly in that city and look across the straits, you see Japan. Um, 
And it turns out that they had been sending ships. Oh, I'm sorry. If you look on a map, it actually doesn't appear on a modern map of uh, Korea, which is hilarious. Um, but yeah, it, 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 yeah, it's a little too small. Yeah, um, but yeah, it's just a little bit inland. Um, but yeah, you can see. Um, you can see across to Japan, which is astounding, down there towards the tip. And, and the cultural exchange was intense, but actually mostly one way. Um, and, and, and it seems a lot of what we take to be Japanese, for instance, the Japanese got Buddhism from China. How did the Japanese get Buddhism from China? They got it from Korea. And the notion that the Buddhists just wandered through Korea, waved and didn't talk to anybody, and somehow got in a boat and sailed to Japan, is just, it was bizarre. We would never suspect this of any other culture, right? We would never say, oh, well, sure, they were there for 500 years, and then they went over to Japan, and then that didn't have any impact. Right? It, it's, it, you know, so these influences, a lot of linguistic influences, although the ja Japanese do not like to mention this. By the way, as I mentioned, the, the use of Chinese characters to represent your native speech that the, that the Koreans had, very similar, it still exists in um, Japanese today. It's one of the things that makes Japanese impossible to write, um, is the fact that they have this as one of their alphabets. Um, so the influence is flowing across into Japan from Korea. Also, the Korean interpretation of Buddhism and Confucianism is flowing back into China. The Chinese said this. Some of the major works of Confucian scholars come from Korea. So Korea is influencing Japan and China during this period and later. So it's not an isolated and unknown commodity in its time. Um, in an amazing passage uh, that's uh, it's almost unbelievable, um, this is about Guangzhou. Um, this is from an Arab traveler. So the Arabs were, were on the march, now traveling around, sailing about. And um, it's from about 950. And this is a quote. Uh, Seldom has a stranger who has come there from Iraq or another country left it afterwards. So healthy is the air, so pure the water, so fertile the soil, and so plentiful all good things. Now this is from a writer from Baghdad, hence Iraq, um, writing at the golden age of Islam the Abbasid Caliphate, the absolute zenith of Islamic art influence power in the world, in the ancient world, goes to a place we've never heard of and says, man, this is where you want to be. No one who's been here goes back to Baghdad. They don't go back to Iraq. There's nothing going on there. You want to be here. Right? So this notion that there's a sort of cultural aesthetic wasteland is, 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 is bizarre. Uh, practically, when you when you consider these sorts of influences, so now history marches forward. Um, uh, uh, Goryeo defeats. The, um, uh, wow, Silla is defeated by Gorjo, uh, and in 936, 1388, and so this sort of the fluorescence, the golden age of this area, sort of fades a little bit. There's a little more warfare. You know, anytime there's an unsettled period. Um, Scholarship is still going on, of course. And then in 1388, Goryeo is defeated by the Joseon dynasty. Now, what's incredible about this is they rule unbroken succession, give or take, until the 1890s, officially until, I think, 19, 1896. But roughly 1890s, things start to fall apart on them. So there's 500 years of unbroken rule. But that 500 years of unbroken rule is connected to a previous 800 years of Buddhist, Confucius, Chinese interplay and influence. The, the social system, intellectual system of Korea is developing, it's changing. There's battles and peasants' revolts and all this, but it's coherent within the Buddhist, Confucius, Korean system. Until about, oh, 1890s, when, of course, imperialism rolls through the door, right? And the United States actually tried to invade Korea twice. We call this opening Korea. Uh, we, we, you know, that's right, we want to open them to foreign trade, which means you must trade with us or die, I believe is the, have we got a deal with you? Uh, give us, uh, 
And Korea did not want to be open. This is how it became named the Hermit Kingdom. Now notice this is like the like Hermit Kingdom. There's something wrong with them. <laughs> if you don't want to trade with us, there's something wrong with you. Now Korea is trading quite happily with China. They're like, hey, China is the center of the world and had been you know, for the preceding 2,000 years of our history. We're perfectly happy with that. No problem. But of course, this isn't going to do. And once China starts to falter, Korea finds itself in a very tricky situation. They're like, ah, oh, what do we do? Where do we turn? Well, in one of the most amazing developments in world history that we'll talk about in next month's lecture on Japan and Japanese, the Japanese uh, pummel the Russians at sea and, and give them a good run for their money on the land um, in, in the Russo-Japanese War. And this just shocks the entire world. Nobody was prepared for it. The Japanese were prepared for it. Nobody but the Japanese were prepared for it. They could not believe that one of these great imperial nations could meet a lowly Asian, you know, third-rate, backwards, ignorant people with no technology and be bested even temporarily. And so this, they became the coming nation. Everyone's like, wow, all right, well, let's let Japan in on this imperialist game. So Japan is in Manchuria. Japan is trying to press into Russia. Now, this is imperialism, right? I mean, this is, this is, uh, you know, this is, Japan is just saying, this is what imperial countries are doing. We want some of that. And so they start knocking on the door in, in Korea, but Korean doesn't want anybody knocking on their door. So the first thing they try to do is play off the great powers against each other. They make friends with the Russians because they're close. They're very nervous about the Japanese, but they you know, cut a few deals there. But most of this is actually done through China still. <clears throat> they say, well, negotiate with the Chinese. And then they would send ambassadors, the other people would send ambassadors, and they'd work it all out, and then they'd come back to Korea and go, what do we want to do? But a very challenging time. Um, finally, this falls apart. The United States, again, unsuccessfully attacks Korea twice. Um, they were turned back, unwilling to commit huge numbers of troops to do this. Uh, angered angered the, uh, the Koreans immensely, of course. Um, but finally, Japan looks like the coming power. And internally, this creates a, a hugely... I mean, I, I'm trying to imagine what it would be for us to face this. Your cultural heritage has been... Well, you've had one ruling dynasty for 500 years. Before that, you've got another 1,000 years of coherent history. You've built a very intricate, valuable, <laughs> Confucius Buddhist system. That works for you. Peasants getting a bad deal. Peasants always get a bad deal. But for most of the people, most of the time, we have stability, we have order, we know what's going on. And what's important to notice is that Confucius, in particular, idea of man is very different from our idea of man, particularly as the Koreans understood it. So if you look at uh, one writer, Confucius Yi Wong, 1501 to 1570, he's one of hugely prominent Korean Confucian or Neo-Confucian scholars. Um, his face, I love this, his face is on the 1000 won note in Korea today. So that lets you know how influential he was. So from you know, 600 years ago, He's still on the 1001 note today. So a very significant scholar. Essentially, nothing of his work has been translated into English, a recurrent problem that I'll return to shortly. Um, Neo-Confucianism and Confucianism through thinkers like this in Korea developed a, a, a combination of Taoism, Buddhism, and Confucianism, which focused on the importance of the individual. It was, it was not a religious system. It was a system that said, to make a country great, you improve the quality of the people. Happy people, moral people, upright people make a strong, powerful, moral, upright country. And we create a system to take care of that. Uh, uh, shared responsibilities, duties that you have to your parents, duties that you have to the ruler, duties the rulers have to you. Now, it's not an imperfect system exploited just like everything else, but it's a system built around the notion of the improvability of the human being. Accentuate their best qualities, <coughs> train out, control their worst qualities, and we'll have an orderly, healthy, happy, growing system. 
It also assumes that human beings are innately good. This is often overlooked in the Confucian system. The central one, not the, one central assumption in Confucianism is human beings are good. And what we want to do is make them bring out that inherent goodness in them. Because if we're all good, and we can bring that goodness out, then the world will be a great place. So after, you know, a thousand, over a millennia of this concept comes modern imperial capitalism, right? I mean, it's a bit of a shocker. So all the Asian countries, including Korea, are looking around going, what, how do we respond to this? These are not stupid people. They knew they were being threatened. They knew they were being challenged. And a lot of what they said is, well, we need to improve ourselves. We need to make ourselves better people. They called these internal strengthening movements. Um, make, make, make Korea stronger by making our people stronger. Make us brighter, make us smarter, make us more moral and upright, and then these foreigners will go away. I'm not sure exactly what the plan was, but it was this idea that we need to make ourselves better. Um, but obviously this is not going to work in the modern world. Uh, and so uh, tragically, of course, they, are, they are, end up being dominated by Japan. And so you have this period of Japanese uh, imperial domination roughly from 1900 to 1945. I mean, there's all kinds of complications on both ends of that, but we'll just, we'll call it that. 45 or 50 years of Japanese imperial domination. Everything about their culture was destroyed. It's absolutely catastrophic. It's unimaginably catastrophic. I just, I, like I said, the only equivalent I could come up with is if somebody invaded our country and said, right, there's no money, no private property, no media. And everybody in the country has to move someplace else. That was essentially what happened to their system. One, they were local, family-based communities. This is part of the Confucian heritage, part of the way they did land tenureship. The Japanese, as the war progressed, they needed labor. They needed factories. They needed industrial development. And so they shifted huge parts of the population into industrial centers. At the end of the war, they were moving them into Korea. I mean, into Korea. They were moving them into Japan because they needed miners, coal miners, factory workers, even soldiers, because they were getting desperately short on manpower. And so physically, they dislocated masses of the countryside. The Confucius system has no use for trade, particularly in its Korean embodiment. They just said, you know, trade is bad. Basically, Confucius said trade is bad. I mean, in their system, they tried to limit it. They thought extravagant wealth made people greedy and evil, and it, it appealed to people's worst characteristics. Greed, avarice, those aren't good characteristics of people. We want peace and, and harmony and sharing. So that, those were much more emphasized. And so now you are supposed to have a system where, no, scratch all that, massive imperial trade. Get rid of these Confucian scholars. They actually have no role in society anymore. We're going to move in business managers, military leaders, planners, electric light. Oil, but you know, the whole industrial thing, machine came to them in 50 years, forced on them from the outside. So the industrial development that the United States underwent from, say, 1800 to 1950, which was traumatic enough for our society, right? All the peasants leaving the agriculture, moving into the cities, we have race riots, and this is all that. Imagine we had to do it in 50 years, but it was an outsider who made us do it. Yeah, it wouldn't have been popular. <laughs> and it would have been traumatic. And this is exactly what happened. Hugely traumatic. So then uh, the war ends. Um, and lots of Koreans have to come back from Japan, start trying to put their lives back together. But to what? There is no government system because it was the Japanese. And the Japanese didn't destroy a system that was ready to be rebuilt because the Japanese destroyed a system that had been continuously operating for, you know, four or five hundred years at that point that could not be rebuilt. It had been eliminated. So what do you do? 
Well, fortunately, the far-thinking folks at the United States uh, military saw that this was going to be a problem. And just before the end of the war, they sent two um, colonels, I believe, into a room and said, hey, go in there and figure out a place to divide Korea with the Russians. And so 20 minutes later, they came back and said, how about the 38th parallel? And they said, great, done. And that's how we got the 38th parallel. Unbelievably. They're true. That's, actually, that's true. That's how, how this happened. So the idea was, well, Russia will get half, and we'll get half, and we'll somehow come to an agreement, and we'll have a new government that will take over Korea. Of course, this does not work out very well, because the Russians were just weren't all that interested in taking over Korea, for the one hand, um, and we were terrified that the peasants were going to rise up and, and throw off all the existing leaders in Korea, because, of course, many of them were Japanese puppets, and people did not like them. And so we said, well, who's the pro-business people? And the pro-business people turned out to often be the people who've been working with the Japanese business people. And so we sort of backed one very small fraction of the society in South, South Korea. And in North Korea was a very much more fluid situation, but very much more bottom-up. I mean, North Korea today, not a happy place, but at that point they were really trying to do land reform, trying to make friends with China, of course, who's undergoing their own revolution, working deals with Russia. I mean, it was, it was very much more fluid and complex. Of course, eventually this leads to the Korean War um, to try and work out how you're going to negotiate between the North and the South or not negotiate, of course, as the case is. Um, and famously, all the history books say 1950 is when the war starts. Uh, this is not, I mean, of course it's arguable, who knows when the war starts, but really, if you're Korean, it probably starts in 1949. In fact, it may start in 1948. But anyway, by 1950, we've got a real big shooting war on our hands. And it takes about three years to work out that, you know what, we'll just go back to where we started the war on the 38th parallel. And we think, great, okay, there we go, we've taken care of business. Except over 2 million Korean civilians had been killed. All of North Korea had been carpet bombed into non-existence. Much of South Korea had been overrun and terrorized. And you still don't have a stable government on either side of the border. So this is a, it's a, an unbelievably traumatic like 65 years. Stability, coherence, cultural flow and development, 65 years of, of chaos, overthrow, destruction, that leads to nowhere. Leads to 1953. Now what do we do? Extraordinary. No one predicted this, by the way. Nobody, zero people said, oh, well, in 60 years, the south of the country is going to be one of the largest, most advanced industrial societies in the world. And the north of the country will be the world's largest prison. Right? But this, this, is what, this is where we're headed. But in fact, this is exactly what's happened. Um, it turns out the Koreans aren't backwards and ignorant, lazy barbarians from the south. Um, they had, again, a 1,500-year tradition of education. You want to know who believes in education in the world? The Koreans believe in education. Wow, do they believe in education. They're so dedicated to education that they have schools that students go to after school. And they have state inspectors who go around and make sure those schools close by 10.30, I believe it's 10.30 at night. Because the students have to then go home and do their homework and get up the next morning and go back to the regular schools. So these after-school private schools know this is coming, and so they just turn the lights out and all the students sit quietly until the inspector passes, and they turn the lights on and go right on working. No, this is absolutely true. They believe in education. It's one of the things, it has this Confucian element, it also has this notion of how do we build a new society? <coughs> one way is through education. Um, they also d 
realized, and had, well, one of the things that they realized, unfortunately, but it's true, is when the Japanese began industrializing their country, they began industrializing in, again, you know, 1910, really heavily in the 1930s. So their industrial base was very advanced. Most industrialized countries had begun industrializing much later, or much earlier. And so they have all these old, inefficient plants hanging around. They're not great, but you don't want to tear them down and build new ones. So in a way, Korea comes out of the war with sort of industrial skills, lots of, of, of uh, already manufacturing facilities in place, and really pretty good ones. And there's more of this in the, the, the one element, again, which is why it's weird we don't know anything about them. The United States absolutely poured money into the country. I mean, poured money into the country. 80 and 90% of their GDP in many years was direct grants from the US government. Forget what the military was spending. And so it's built up this massive country today, again, one of the most modern, organized uh, countries in the world that we know nothing about. So again, as I was doing research for this, as I mentioned Wan Ho, the, the, or I mentioned uh, Yi Wong, the, the Confucianist, I really couldn't find anything translated by him. He's on the thousand yuan note. He's hugely famous. He's known in China. He's known all over the Confucius world. Extraordinary scholar. Lots of works in many languages, six or seven, but unknown to us. Um, probably their leadest one, or not their leading, one of their leading Buddhist thinkers, Wan Ho, from the seventh century, um, influence again all over China, uh, has seven or eight major works. Finally, they're being translated now, right now. They just finally have a special product uh, project working with uh, the Korean, uh, Korean University, I forget which one, and, and the United States publisher to say, look, we should, we should be publishing this guy's work because it, you know, it's important. Um, and it's, again, it's, it's, it's hugely influential. And so this is this you know, strange mix. What do we know about Korea? Not much. Again, even though right now I looked up the numbers, we're, we're adding more troops to Korea right now. We're building up our presence in Korea. Which our official policy is called a shift to Asia. But if you say Asia to people, what do we think? Japan, China, Philippines maybe. We think Korea, but the troops, many of the troops are going to Korea. We also have one of the most volatile situations in the world right now between South and North Korea. It's been one of the most volatile situations in the world since 1950 or before. And yet, as far as I can tell, we know nothing about what's going on. For instance, on one hand, I mean, North Korea, let's face it, nasty place. But the vast majority of the people there are peasants. In fact, in some ways, the vast majority of people there are the peasants who have always been there. They have no dog in any fight between North and South Korea. They want to be left alone to grow some food, raise their children, and get some foreign DVDs. By the way, they love the foreign DVDs, smuggling them in left and right, right? They love Hollywood movies everywhere in the world. And, and there's this terror, we have this terror of, oh, at some point these, these brainwashed North Koreans are going to come flooding across the border. Right? They, have a, they have a huge military, they could do this, but on the other hand, I don't know. Are they that terrifying? Why are they terrifying? Do we know anything about them? I was just reading that um, Dennis Rodman, may, you may know, is over in North Korea doing various helpful and unhelpful things. It turns out that Dennis Rodman was the person who discovered that the, that, that Kim Il, the, the current ruler, forget which Kim it is, uh, has a son, has a child. They did not know this till Dennis Rodman got there. That's how much we don't know <laughs> about what the hell is going on in North Korea. Right? We don't know. And so that scares us. But we don't know what's going on in South Korea either. But we're not scared of them because apparently they're our friends. Right? So this is very strange. And I'm not sure, to tell you the truth, I'm not sure exactly what to make of it. That, that we could have troops, tens of thousands of troops, in a country for 60 years contiguously, 
That many, how many, how many gentlemen here in Korea? Have you gone to Korea? People? One? Two? Three, four, yeah. so some people have been to Korea. Many of our servicemen have gone over to Korea. So we must know it exists. How many people have a Samsung phone? Right. Hyundai? Anybody heard of Hyundai? Kia? They're, I believe they're the fourth or fifth largest car manufacturer in the world um, now. Very large uh, uh, Korean chaibol. LG washing machines. Uh, L- LG, how many LG washing machines and refrigerators? K-pop is uh, K-pop. mixing in this is, I was about to go this thing right now. Right now, the biggest cultural influence coming out of Korea, in fact, the biggest cultural influence that may have ever come out of Korea to, to us, not to China or Japan, but to us, um, is probably K-pop, which is this interesting form of, of popular music. Um, that was developed in Korea and is now taking over all parts of the world, apparently. Uh, if, you were in, and if you were in Los Angeles, you would know all about this. They have huge, massive concerts there. I, I imagine Seattle might be similar. So this is, this is sort of where I want to sort of exit from, is this notion, this very strange notion, is we consider ourselves to be cosmopolitan, right? The world's free and open, and it's out there, and we have all these people that we trade with. How is it that a culture falls so off the map? And I have, I have a couple of, of guesses, but again, this is just pretty, purely speculation. Um, one, they, they didn't have anything to do with us. They didn't want anything to do with us for the first several thousand years of their existence. And they developed a unique cultural heritage that we almost can't get so very different. Really profoundly different, and there never was an opportunity because of the traumatic way in which that culture was terminated, for us to interact with them in that culture. In China, there were hundreds of years of contact between East and West, and China, for for all of the notions of it being isolated, was always very cosmopolitan. They sent ambassadors out. They sent ships out. They, they knew about the world. They might not have been interested in it, but they tended to know pretty clearly what was going on around them. Um, Korea, not so much. And so the, the, the transition was so shocking for them. And then if you think with literature, as I mentioned, Hangul became used for writing Korean, which is the Korean alphabet, you know, 1900. In fact, actually later when you consider all of the living Chinese scholars are not going to suddenly decide that they want to write in Hangul. And then you have a war that disrupts everything. So as far as new cultural development, they have had an opportunity since maybe 1960. People get settled in, new systems get started, little wealth gets generated. So Korea's really had about 50 years to begin to build some sort of coherent cultural edifice on the wreckage of that horrible transition imposed on them from without. So I'm not sure they, you know, I'm not sure we should expect, maybe it's amazing that they have K-pop by now, right? This is extraordinary. Um, And so when, when you go to translate Chinese classics, well, you've got a thousand years there. But we don't recognize those classics in, in Korea because they're written in Chinese too, I guess. If we went to the, to the New World, as we talked about before, you know, Aztecs and Mayans, they destroyed a lot of the works, um, but a lot of the works apparently more comprehensible. We've been much more interested in Aztec and Mayan civilizations, actually not that interested, but more than Korean. Um, but so it really is, in some ways, the most, one of the most new places in the world. It's only about culturally 50 years old. And I can't think of anything else that's that sort of fresh. Maybe reunified Germany, but the history there is a lot different. And so they're really just coming into their own. And you can see this in any number of ways. As I mentioned, their economy is absolutely booming. The unemployment rate, which they're complaining about, is 3.1%. They're like, well, we've got to do something about this because youth unemployment is like 7%. Wow, that's a problem. I was like, oh, yeah, that's a bad problem you have there. Uh, They're negotiating big trade deals with India. 
which is, you know, relatively right there. Um, China, they're, they're, they're working a lot with China. You know, they're, they're, Korea's kind of on the march. And then the notion of reunification. Right? We talk about North and South Korea, but, but for the preceding 1800 years, there was not a North and South Korea. No one ever imagined there would be a line drawn there. It makes no sense historically or politically or culturally at all, geographically, nothing. It's, it's senseless. Um, and everybody, almost everybody who thinks about this says, yeah, there's going to be reunification at some point. But who knows what that's going to look like? And so it may be in this case, you know, it could be any day, could be a year, could be 10 years, could be 20 years. But given the history, it almost looks, it seems inevitable, but of course history is odd. Sometimes inevitable things don't happen. But this new, fresh, incredibly young civilization culture that is just coming into its own now has both this huge challenge and this huge opportunity right before it. And so I think that's perhaps the most interesting thing about the development of Korean language and its civilization is it's, it's, somehow, it's just basically starting over. And right now, we're going to be able to watch over the next decade, two decades, uh, what strides it can make and if it can reunify, what that will mean culturally. I think it would be amazing, but again, a huge challenge, a massive challenge. So yeah, um, that, that's, that's where I could work out. Is that one reason we don't know about it is because of this odd history, its own isolation, but partly because it, it's just now developing itself. It's got thousands of years to build on, but such a destructive and horrible interregnum that it has to start over in a modern world, and it has, and it has successfully. And my question really now is, you know, now what? I think watch Korea. In the next 20 years, Korea could really be one of the new things in the world. So thank you very much, Korea.